Turn in your Bible with me to the book of James, and let's uh, let's jump back in here from our study last time. We're in chapter 1 today. We're rocking along through this uh, fast-paced book. And as you're turning there, uh, I'd like you to think about uh, this last week in our country, we remembered uh, three anniversaries of tragedy. And uh, does anybody have a thought of what that might be? I heard someone whisper it. The Challenger, the Space Shuttle Challenger, no, uh, January 28, 1986. Uh, remember, uh, probably, well, most of you remember that. Some of you weren't born yet. Um, I remember I was, I was in fifth grade, fourth grade, fifth grade, and uh, I, I was a NASA geek, so I knew all about it. And, and that, was, that was a horrible day, absolutely horrible day. And that was the one that had the teacher, Chris McAuliffe. Um, some of you may remember the, the story there. Okay, that was one. What was the other? What were the other two? Apollo one, right? The very first uh, Apollo crew, the crew that was supposed to go to the moon. They were doing a test fire on the pad. What happened? Do you remember? There was a fire, and uh, that was back when they um, uh, they they filled the capsule with 100% oxygen, and uh, didn't realize the the fire risk. And when something sparked, it immediately ignited and and uh, those three men uh, died tragically in that that uh, accident. And what was the third one? Columbia. Columbia. All right. Who said that? Greg. <laughs> okay. Good job. Good job, Greg. Uh, yeah, Columbia, 2003, uh, February 1st. Uh, it was just a couple months before Alan was born. We had just moved here uh, full time to take the full time position here at Grace. And uh, how many of you saw the Columbia? That day, as it went, because it, uh, it, the glide path actually took it right across Texas on its way to Kennedy to land, and uh, it was over Texas that um, the uh, the heat shield on one of the uh, leading edges of the wing failed. Remember, there was a it got damaged on liftoff, and at that point, um, all those uh, atmospheric reentry gases and, and high temperatures uh, compromised the wing structure, and it disintegrated over Texas, and um, so those those are those are the, the three most uh, tragic points in manned spaceflight in our country, and they all occurred within a month, a week of each other. Uh, 1967, January 27th, I think 26th, 27th uh, was Apollo. Uh, January 28th, 1986 was Challenger, and February 1st, 2003. So all within the span of a week, which is really kind of interesting. Uh, so tragic uh, in, in terms of our, our nation's history, what was incredible was that that happened in 1967. I don't think they flew, they, they did any other like Apollo testing missions for almost two years. And, um, and yet we were able to land a man on the moon by the end of the, of the decade, the way that uh, President John Kennedy had challenged our nation and NASA to do in 1967. Uh, same with Challenger, right? The space shuttle flew again, and over 50 other flights happened after that. And now, of course, we're sending SpaceX rockets, it seems like almost weekly, um, and uh, talking about going to Mars and going back to the moon and, and whatnot. So in each one of these cases, uh, our nation found a way to overcome the challenge. And uh, and that's 
that that's a credit to uh, the people that that work in those um, those areas. And in a similar way, remember our our writer here, James, the the half brother of Jesus, is writing to the early church because they're facing really the first challenges that the church has faced because the church has literally just been invented. And uh, that first wave of persecution of challenge came from actually Jews in Jerusalem. And that persecution was significant enough that uh, those early Christians, Jewish Christians in Jerusalem had to leave Jerusalem and scatter to other parts, other surrounding countries and cities. And uh, as you read in chapter one, verse one, it's the, it's written to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad. And the book of James is about living real faith in difficult times and, and overcoming those challenges as we would seek to live in fidelity to the gospel and to the Lord Jesus. So very, very relevant book. And, and I think it, it speaks volumes for what we're facing today. So um, this first section, I haven't framed it like this, but this first little section that we're looking at in chapter one it is really asking the question, how do we respond to challenges? Because that's what James is doing. He's throwing out these challenges, and then he's instructing these early Christians on how they can respond to those challenges. And along the way, part of what James is trying to do is he's trying to help us to see what does a real Christian look like? And what does real faith lived out actually actually look like in life? So this is a great book to study if you're trying to figure out what is a true Christian. Or, or maybe you're, rest, you're, you're talking with somebody and they're trying to figure out what does it mean to be a Christian? This is a great book to take them to because it really paints a picture. In our culture, in the, in the Christian South here, in, in the, the residual of the ever-eroding Bible Belt, this is a great book too. Because being a Christian is not about uh, rooting for the cowboys, saying you all, drinking sweet tea, and going to church on Sunday. Right? I know, I know. It's stepping on your toes. Uh, being a Christian is about Jesus having first place in every area of your life. And seeking to love him and honor him and trust him and obey him in everything. That's what being a Christian is really about. And so James offers a very timely correction to those of us that are sort of in the cultural Christian uh, part of the country uh, to recognize um, what it really means to walk with God. So uh, just, just to kind of bullet point these for you, and I put these in your notes just so you kind of had a little outline of the first chapter. Uh, and when we think about challenges, we've looked at some of these already. He, he start, starts, first of all, about the, the challenge of trials. And we looked at that last week. When we face trials, how do we uh, overcome that challenge? How do we respond to trials? We also looked last week about lacking wisdom, right? Oftentimes, uh, in a difficulty, we're, we're, what do I do, right? I, I spent, I, I probably had three or four different significant meetings this last week where the person I was talking to was essentially saying this, I have a challenge in life and I don't know what to do. And one of the privileges of getting to be a pastor is getting to come alongside and say, well, here's how you handle situations like that. Here's what the word of God says. And we can pray together. We can seek to have God supply wisdom as we would pray, the way James reminds us here. So we lack wisdom, right? How do we respond to that? Uh, today, we're going to look at the challenge of being humbled and the challenge of temptation. And finally, the challenge, uh, believe it or not, when we experience good things 
And then finally, challenges with relationships, okay? So my name is Keith. I'll be your tour guide today. And uh, let's jump in and pick it up where we left off last time. Let's talk about the challenge of being humbled, okay? Look back at the text. Look at verse 9 with me. But the brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position. The rich man is to glory in his humiliation because, like Flowering grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass and its flower falls off and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too, the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. I was trying to put myself in, in, in the sandals of these early Christians. First century, they're living in Jerusalem. They make a profession of faith that they're turning their back in a sense on, on the old system of Pharisaic Judaism that was popular in that day. And all of a sudden, their families are alienating them. Their employers are alienating them. Their religious officials are, are beginning to put pressure on them. And that reaches a threshold where these dear early Christians say, we, we can't stay here. We can't live here anymore. And they scatter. And, and one of the challenges you think about that is you don't have any doubt. These are guys that are, that are leaving careers. They're leaving jobs. They're leaving family. And so one of the things that these early Christians were facing was likely a very significant change in economic status. And you just think about that, right? If you had to jump up and leave your career and move to another part of town, well, you may have been able to find work there, maybe not, or maybe, maybe you're stuck making, you know, just making ends meet, right? Versus getting back to whatever vocation you had. And so in picturing that, maybe that's what James has in mind here as he's talking to these early Christians. There's, there's this change of, of economic status. And what James wants to see them, it, it wants to, wants to teach them is that there's a, there's a way we should think about being humbled. Maybe it's a, a humility of loss of economic status. Maybe it's a humility that comes when we lose physical function or we have a medical situation. Maybe it's humility, uh, that comes when, um, you know, the, the, the things that uh, are dear to us are lost in some way. Uh, and he actually says here that we should glory. Look at this. We should glory in our high position when we have humble circumstances. We say, what kind of math is that? We should, the word glory just means to take pride in something, right? So so when my daughter and her friends are are swimming, I mean, they're just screaming through the water yesterday at the swimming championship and we're all rooting and we're cheering, right? That, that's what the word means, right? We're proud of somebody. We're glorying in it. And he, yet he says here to, to glory in the high position that we have in humble circumstances. And when you, when you and I are humbled, we don't see that as a high position, do we? Right? We don't see that as a high position. We, we think you know, if I lose money, if I lose status, I lose a job. I'm humbled by my circumstances in some way. We think that's a bad thing. How do we get back to where we were? And yet James is saying to these early Christians, hey, if you've left family, you've left jobs, and you're in a place of economic humility, uh, really he has an, the idea here of low social status, what says humbled circumstances there. He says, you know what? That's actually a high position. Now, now talk to me about why being humbled is actually an exalted place that we should glory in or, or be proud of. Help me with the arithmetic there. How does that work? 
What's that? Okay, maybe when we're humbled, we are driven to trust God more. We see our need to trust God more. Would you agree with that? Absolutely, right? Okay. Okay, so it's, it's, it's God's view of what's going on rather than my own view or a worldly. Yeah. Can you, well, we'll talk about this when we get to James 4, but James is going to quote from the Old Testament when he says, God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the, what? To the humble. And again, we, we don't think about it like that. We're not thinking about it from God's perspective. But God says when we're in a place of humility, that's actually good for our hearts because God loves to lavish grace on us because we're likely trusting Christ more and rather than trusting in whatever the, in this case, maybe the economic status that we were leaning on too much. Now watch it. Yeah. Yeah. Jewish unique position in the Roman Empire of being a, a, a crude religion, sure. not having to pay taxes in some cases, not having to give thanks, is being threatened by this new Jewish hmm. sect, as yeah. the Romans would view it, yeah. that was going to perhaps take away what they had yeah. as status and freedom. Makes sense, yeah. Yeah, so, so yeah, throw, throw that into the equation, right? So now you've got this other pressure, this political pressure that could be potentially a part of it. Yeah, good. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I mean, James seems to be just firing off sort of these random commands, but I, I think there's a thread of connection in that, you know, a trial that he says, you know, you need to find joy in because of what it produces is, is usually humbling as well. And it's usually an occasion that where we need wisdom. So yeah, there is, there is a tie in there for sure. Um, now, now flip that around because we're all tempted and maybe this goes back to, to Carl's point here about thinking about the, some political unrest. To, to see, um, you know, man, here are people that are economically better off. Here are people who, um, you know, like, like Asaph says in Psalm 73, um, they, they've got life going well in their, in their riches and in their prominence. And, and yet God says, listen to God's, again, God's assessment here. The rich man is to glory in his humiliation. Why? Because he's going to uh, pass away like the flowering grass. He's going to be scorched, <laughs> the, like the flower falls off. The beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So the rich man, in the midst of his pursuits, will fall away. So if God has blessed you economically, well, praise the Lord for that. But when when we are humbled out of our economic prosperity, that's a good thing because Rich people that tend to trust in their riches instead of Christ have a destination. And the destination is they fade away, right? They, they, they are no more. We think of, um, you know, Ebenezer Scrooge, right? And uh, we, the Christmas Carol. Maybe you like to watch that film or read the book around Christmas time like we do. And that, and that was part of the point, right? Was that he had all this wealth and it amounted to nothing. 
And, and that's James' point. Now, James is obviously making a, a spiritual point. You die in your sins, rich, and, and you still face the same judgment of all sinners. But, but that's a good moment of remembering. Um, and, and, you know, all of us, according to biblical standards, are well, well off, right? I don't know what you think of your economic status, but by biblical standards, we are rich. And so when God humbles us economically, politically, uh, medically, physically, uh, experientially, that that is a cause of rejoicing and grace because we know God is ensuring that we will trust him and lean on him instead of our riches or our uh, economic status in that way. And, and, and this, is, this is one of those things that is challenging as you grow as a Christian. You learn to see occasions of humility as good gifts from the Lord for your good. Because God gives grace to the humble. Because it causes us to trust Christ. Because it might unravel some of our tendency to rely more on political stability or, or whatever it happens to be. Um, so again, James is, is reshaping in a radical way how we normally think about life. And yet that's exactly what we need. He's writing to early. I, I read this book and I go, man, this is like this is like, you know, grad school for for Christianity. And yet he's writing to the very first generation of Christians. And uh, so these in, in at least in James mind, these are fundamental truths of what every Christian ought to embrace and, and ought to live. OK, so so boasting in the high position of humility is another Another way that we think about life through a biblical lens. So we got to keep going. Uh, yeah, uh, Melissa. Um, I was wondering, so I know that uh, the Lord wants us to be humble mm-hmm. and trust Him and let people do that. And then the Yeah, I think, I guess a, a phrase that I found myself using recently is a humble confidence. You know, it, it's humble because it's dependent. Most times when we think about confidence, it's a confidence in ourselves. But Christian confidence is a confidence in another. So it's a humble confidence, but it's nonetheless a confidence, right? That we, we trust the Lord and that brings stability, that brings hope, that brings encouragement because we know him and we know what he said and the more we lean on that, the more stable and confident we are in him. So it's, it's a humble confidence, yeah. But I, I appreciate how you brought those two things together, because I think we do tend to think of those as, as incompatible. But that's a good point. Okay, let's talk about temptation. Talk about temptation. I love this section of James. Watch where he goes here. Uh, verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted... I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. And and we've made this point before that when we are dealing with difficult circumstances and challenges, often we are tempted in more significant ways. I think think there's a temptation that comes in prominence, and there's a temptation that comes in challenges and difficulties. But so James is anticipating some of the ways that the believers might be tempted 
in their affliction. Now, now notice he's quick to say that uh, when we're tempted, that we don't have the option to blame God. Right. God's just out to get me. God's just trying to. And I think maybe you felt like this. Sometimes when life is really going wrong, we can begin to accuse God of being inappropriately involved in our afflictions, right? In the wrong way, I mean. I mean, certainly he's he's sovereign over those. And uh, so so James says, you know, when we're tempted, uh, we shouldn't say I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil. He himself does not tempt anyone. And um, uh, okay, so so we we God is guilt free here in terms of that. Okay. But look at 14. 14 begins to answer the question, well, where does our temptation come from? But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lusts, or your Bible might say his own desires. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Therefore, do not be deceived. And that's his main command here, right? It is don't be deceived by your own temptations, by your own desires. Now, this, this is so good because what James has done here is he has plotted on the board behind us a schematic of why you and I get tempted. How does temptation work? And if you can under, here's his thought. If you can understand it, you can undermine it. You can avoid it. Uh, so, so look at here. If God is not the source of temptation, where does temptation come from? Okay, originally, for sure. Yeah, we can blame Adam and Eve, right? No. Um, but, but what does James say? Where, where does it come from? The devil, it wasn't God, the devil made me do it. Is that what he says here? Okay, so, so here, here is... Here is the indictment of this verse. While we recognize that God is sovereign over all things, you know, he's not setting us up for failure, right? Uh, while we know the devil can and does tempt believers, the New Testament talks about that, Job talks about that, James is helping us to see that the devil is not the primary source of our temptations, even though sometimes that's true. Uh, you ready? We are the source of our primary temptation. It's our own desires, our own lusts. And some of you know that word. That word means strong desire or a ruling desire. I think of it as it's something you want that has its hands on the steering wheel of your heart. And it's going to direct you. Right. It's going it's to move you toward a certain way of living. It, it's a it's a strong ruling or governing desire. So each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lusts. Um, I grew up in Southern California. I grew up body surfing at the beach. That was just something we did growing up. And then when you get a little bit older, you get out a boogie board. You learn how to do some some bodyboarding out there in the wonderful cold, chilly water of Southern California, compared to the Gulf, at least. And um, there is a phenomenon that you have to know if you're going to do any sort of body surfing, bodyboarding, you know, actual board surfing, anything like that. 
it, it is known as an undertow, or sometimes it is called a rip current, right? Now, how many of you are familiar with this sort of thing? Okay. Essentially, what happens in, in the mechanics of how wave, waves work, there is, you know, you see the wave coming in, right? And then it goes out and the wave coming in. And there can be a current underneath the water, so you're not seeing it. And that current can be so strong, especially if you get in the wrong place, that current can literally pull you away from shore out to the open water. And uh, they, they've calculated the strength of these rip currents. And you could put Michael Phelps, the Olympic swimmer, in the ocean, and he is not a strong enough swimmer to overcome a rip current. It's that strong. And of course, so what they teach you is you don't you don't swim against it. You don't try to, you know, there's the shore, it's pulling me out, so I'm gonna run to the shore. What they teach you to do is you swim parallel to the shore to get away from the current, and then once you're out of it, you can get to the beach. But that's the language here. What, what he's saying is we have desires in our hearts that are pulling us almost. It feels like it's pulling us against the direction we want to go. And that leads us to sin. And, and how many of you have had that experience? You have a fallen desire in your heart and it's pulling you in a direction that you know you shouldn't go. How many of you have had that experience before? Okay. Welcome to the, the reality show called the book of James. I mean, th this is so relevant. We all know what that experience is like. He says, that's it. It's, it's pulling you against your will. You say, well, where does the strength of that come from? And th this is, again, this is so insightful. Where does temptation get its power? Because if we can figure that out, if we can neutralize where temptation gets its power, well, guess what? That means we can probably avoid it. We can overcome it. So each man is tempted when he is carried away. That's the experience and here's the word, enticed by his own desires. And that's the word I want you to think about. Okay, On your notes, first of all, notice that temptation comes primarily through our sinful desires. We talked about that. And sinful desires have power because of deception. Deception. That little word enticed, you can write this down, that word enticed means to lure by deception. To lure by deception. And when we think of a lure, we think of one of those, don't we? Or as we say in the South, a lure. Right? The U goes away. It's a lure. Uh, to lure by deception. Now, looking at my example there, um, uh, would someone please explain to me what is the purpose of the lure as it relates to fishing? Oh, to catch fish, sure. Yeah, yeah. Grant, what are we doing? What's that? It's a snare. Okay, how? It looks like food, but what, John? It's deceit. Did you know fishing is about lying to fish? You are lying to God's creation. Shame on you, right? Uh, no, that's exactly the point. The, the, the point of fishing is we are trying to deceive the fish into thinking that that's the easiest lunch he's had in weeks. It just plops right in front of him in the lake. And yet, he, the dumb fish, doesn't see that what looks like something good, what looks like something that will satisfy him or her, could be a girl fish, uh, what looks like something that is beneficial 
will actually be his undoing. So why does Bobby Bass go up and chomp on the lure? Because he is deceived by it. Okay, so with that in mind, put it back into, into language here. Each one is tempted when he is carried away. That's the experience. I'm getting pulled you know, in a direction I don't want to go. And that power, listen, the power of temptation comes because of deception. Why do you and I struggle to do things or to say things that we know are wrong? Answer, because in the moment, we are being deceived by that desire. There's something about that that want that we have that is lying to us. And when we buy into the lie, that creates the power of temptation. I'll give you some examples. Um, we can picture a young child sitting at the video game console thinking, but what could be better than playing another hour of video games? And see, that's a desire that's lying to him, right? He thinks there's nothing better in the world than that. And he is wrongly believing that lie in the moment, which is the motivation for why when mom says, hey, shut it off and go clean your room, he disobeys his mom. He knows, but he knows obeying mom is right. But in the moment, he's deceived by his own desires because he thinks it's it, there can't be anything else better than playing another hour of video games. Right? Marriages across the country that God intends to to be unified in one. There are husbands and wives logicking like this. Well, I have a right to be happy. My spouse doesn't make me happy. Well, I, have, I should have a spouse. I deserve a spouse that meets my needs. She's not meeting my needs. And you see, you see the, the, the lies in that, the deceit in that. And when you buy into the lie, that creates the momentum or the power to follow your fallen desires. And when you follow your fallen desires, what does he say? And when lust is conceived, it gives birth to what? Sin, right? And then when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. That's right. So that's the progression. So here's the takeaway. Behind every temptation that you and I will face is a lie. Or a hook. And I'll tell you, if you can see the hook in your own fallen desires, you're less likely to buy into it. Now, there's a whole other point where we, we, we see the hook, we know it's wrong, we do it anyway. That, that's a whole other discussion for another day. But usually it's in the moment. We just get caught up in the lie. We just get caught up in the deceit. I, I do deserve this. I do deserve that. And, and you're off to sin at that point. So when you and I are struggling with sin, when you and I are struggling tem- with temptation, ask yourself this question. What's the lie that I'm believing? What's the thing that I've embraced that the Bible says is not true that's adding fuel and strength to this temptation, okay? And I wish we could go around the room and do that. I I bet this week this happened to you. I bet you were tempted this week. I bet you did something you shouldn't have done. And I bet if you go back this afternoon and ask me, okay, now what was I wanting? Okay, I know what I was wanting. Was there a lie in that want? Was I being deceived by my own desires in some way? 
100% of the time, the answer is yes. There's a lie behind every temptation. So think about that. And uh, that'll, that will really, really help as we seek to deal with temptation. So back to the text. Uh, each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed, right, to lure by deception. He's, he's deceived by his own desires. And then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. We, we think of what Paul says in Romans, right? The wages of sin is what? Is death, yeah. That's where it goes. And so in 16, what's the admonishment here? What does he say in 16? What's the takeaway? Don't be fooled. Don't be as dumb as Bobby Bass in Lake Granberry. Don't do that. Uh, instead, see through your own desires. See through the deceit. Now, now, now here, here's, here's the advanced course. What is going to purify our wants so that what we want is driven more by truth than by lies? What's going to do that? What's going to purify our desires? Yeah, yeah, Ruth's holding up her Bible. That's right. That's why the Bible is always saying, renew your mind, right? Be careful what you think. Think on things that are true. Take every thought captive. You see this theme all throughout the Bible. It's like what we think about is really important. Because what we think leads to what we want. What we want leads to what we worship. What we worship leads to the things that we do. It's the same progression in Romans 1, right? What we think leads to what we want. What we want leads to what we worship. What we worship leads to what we do. And uh, so, so we cut it off at the pass by taking every thought captive and we're thinking on things that are true from Scripture. And that derails fallen wants and fallen desires so that we don't even end up in that place. Yeah, Carl. Yep. Right. Yep. Uh, most of our tempt that's well said most of our temptation comes to us in plausible lies there's a phrase i think paul tripp was where i read that plausible lies which means it might be 80 percent true I, I don't i don't think christians are thinking huh what high-handed mortal sin can i you know commit today i mean that, that's usually not where we're struggling where we struggle is we think yeah doesn't doesn't god say that a a wife should respect her husband. Yeah, I think that's in the Bible. She's not respecting me. All right. Well, if she's not respecting me, then I'm going to. Right. So it, it, it's it's partially true, but it ends up being wrong. It ends up being a lie. So that, that's really that's really well said. And, and we do need to be renewing our minds carefully in that. Um, you know what else helps with this? I don't go on and on, but um, I find that we do this better in community than we do in isolation. Other people around you can see the lies that you're embracing easier than you can a lot of the times. And that's why in a marriage, in a family, in brotherly, sisterly relationships, in a community, in a home group, in a local church, we need to help each other, right? Because Rusty might be able to see, hey, hey there's Pastor Keith, and, and he keeps doing this thing, and I can see that clearly. 
right? I sh- you know, he's going to come. He's going to come talk to me about that because I don't see it maybe as clearly as he does. And um, and, and we need that. We we need that ministry of coming alongside and, and helping. So so let's let's uh, let's try to do that as we seek to honor God and, and help one another. Okay, so don't be deceived by your own desires. Uh, look at 17. Remember God's good gifts. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. And in the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. I don't think James has just changed the subject. I think what he's doing is he's giving us one more challenge. And the challenge is the challenge of good gifts. When you're dealing with a trial, we, we tend to get sort of spiritual myopia. We, we only see what's right in front of us, and we can't see beyond our circumstances, largely. And, and maybe you felt like this sometime. You know, I got this trial, it's just overwhelming me, and, and, I, I, and I forget I've got a thousand good gifts that God is giving me, even in my trial. But I don't see any of those things, right? I'm, I'm, I'm sort of you know, tunnel vision to the trial. And, uh, and so I think James is saying here, don't forget that every good and perfect gift that you have comes from God himself. Um, maybe that's what he has in mind. Maybe it isn't. But, but that's the point. The point is to see that every good gift we have comes from the Father. And, and you know, let, let me ask you, what, what, is, what is the pragmatic test for whether or not you're seeing the good gifts in your life as coming from God. How do we know if that's happening or not? Yeah. A joy not based on our circumstances. Okay, that's good. I, I, I agree with that. How do you know if you're receiving the good things in your life as gifts from God? Yeah, it's, it's, it's joy and thankfulness, I think, right? You know, do, do you thank God for life and breath and every good thing? You know, a, a, a thankful Christian, a joyful Christian is a Christian that recognizes that everything that we have comes from God. And we can forget that, can't we? When challenges are coming, we, we, we forget that. We, not only do we not see the gifts, but, but we forget, hey, God's in it. God's still in this thing. And, and thankfulness is part of the way that we move through a trial in a way that honors God. I think of Job in Job chapter 1. He you know, loses all ten of his kids, his livelihood, his servants, his crops, most of his animals. Naked I came from my, my mother's womb, naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord took away. What's he saying? Everything I had came from God. It was undeserved even. So God has a right to give it. God has a right to take it away. As hard as that is, as painful as that is, blessed be the name of the Lord, right? Because every good and perfect gift comes from above. And then in 18, look what he says in 18. Most particularly, 
he says, in the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. So, so first among the many good gifts that God gives us is the gift of what? Salvation. That he, he, he drew us. He, he brought forth, uh, our own spiritual life by the word of truth, making us a, a first fruits amongst his creatures. And, and of course, Paul picks that up in, in Colossians and, and talks about, uh, uh, the, the preeminence of Christ and, and that his, uh, his body, the church, uh, share in that, that status of being the first fruits among God. Where, where does that first fruits language come from, by the way? Do you remember that? Where do we hear about first fruits? Yeah, you give the first fruits of your crops. So this goes back to the Old Testament, to the nation of Israel, when they brought in the harvest. Uh, God told them, when you bring in the harvest, you take the first fruits, the first crop, and you offer it to the Lord. Now, why would he have them do that? Okay. Okay. Yeah, it does. It makes you rely on God. Okay. Yeah, great. Remember, it's where it came from. That goes in line with verse 17, right? Yeah. And 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 the picture of that is not that. And and we ought to you know give of our money and give of our time. You know, we understand that there's a there's a parallel for for believers, but that's not really where he's going. Look at what he says. He says so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. God saves us to make us, just like they would take the first fruits and offer it to God, God saves us to set us apart. That's, that's where we get the word holy from, right? The concept of being holy. That God sets us apart for himself as the first fruits, as it were, uh, for his own good purposes. Okay, so, so thinking about trials, do we see drop trials as an occasion for joy because they produce endurance and endurance produces um, uh, maturity? Do we see our need for wisdom and that God asks us to come to him in confident faith and he will supply wisdom? Do we see uh, humility, right? Again, as a, as a, as a glorious position, um, do we see through our temptations? We don't want to be deceived by that. And here we're seeing that even in the midst of difficulty, we need to remember God's good gifts in thankfulness uh, and, and acknowledging that. Let's look at one one final part here, and then this this is a good um, a good paragraph break, break here. Um, practice godly interactions. Practice godly interactions. Look at nineteen. This you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger, for the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Okay. When life is getting difficult, let me ask you a question. Are you careful with your words? Are you eager to hear what other people have to say? And do you typically not struggle with anger? Or is it the opposite of all those things? James has us nailed here, right? When we're struggling, we don't listen well. When we're struggling, we uh, say foolish things. When we're struggling 
Anger is a, usually a pretty regular temptation, isn't it? So, so look at the admonition here. Be quick to hear or quick to listen. Um, how do we do that? Well, let's just let's just make this really practical. How many of you would say you're great listeners? Just top of the chart. Okay, yeah, me neither. Okay. So how do we how do we get better at listening if we're gonna do what James tells us to do here? Grant? Okay. Okay. Yeah, you can't listen and be rambling on and on at the same time, right? Okay. So so be quick to listen, slow to speak. So those go together. Yeah, Ruth. Don't listen with your answer running. About what you're going to say. Yes. Have, prematurely exactly. Have you noticed that often we miss things when another person is talking because we're using that time to calculate a response? Yeah. Right? So we want to listen, we want to pay attention, and then and then take a moment to process. Which means we got to get comfortable with this thing called a pause between conversation. Now, I'm a preacher, uh, long-winded by vocation, so uh, this is real. This is real for me. Uh, so listen, pay attention, and instead of calculating an answer, what should we be doing when the other person is speaking? Practicing patience. Yeah, we're trying to understand, right? And, and I think as a practical matter, we're doing that in our minds. And then maybe when they're done, we say something like this. So what I hear you saying is, and then I might, especially if the conversation is really important. Now, what I hear you saying is, um, now, now how many of you were supposed to be listening? You got distracted. You were calculating an answer. So you weren't really listening. You formulated a response. And as soon as they were done, you launched your response and found out that you totally missed what they were saying and kind of put your foot in your mouth and it was kind of embarrassing. Yeah, okay, all right, Carl, I see that hand. Grant, what else What else do we need to do here? Yeah, put yourself in their shoes. Um, and, I, and I think that's where, you know, appropriate empathy comes into place. You know, it, it's easy to give counsel to somebody who's not in the problem that you're in. And yet, if you if you just pause for a minute and say, now, if I was in that situation, what might I be struggling with? And that, w- that will completely shape your response there. Yeah, John. They, they have a t-shirt that says, a closed mouth leads to what? Yeah. Gathers no feet. Yeah, a closed mouth gathers no feet. I like that. Yeah, yeah, so... Uh, that's worth that's worth thinking about. That's worth learning from. So, okay, good. You guys are doing great. What's other ways we can we can do better at listening? Yes. Yeah. Stop whatever you're doing. And uh, uh, a, a a dear family member uh, who I won't mention right now, but out of their love for me, reminded me the other day that when they were talking. I was wandering the other direction going, yeah, uh-huh. That's not very loving. That's not conducive to good listening. And it was a good reminder for me because I I want to listen well, and that's just what I was doing. 
And that was that was wrong. Uh, okay, someone else. Michael, you were going to say something. What were you going to say? No? Okay. How else do we, we grow in listening? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, put down that phone. Yeah. And this is hard, guys. Do, do you struggle with this with your phone like I do? You know, if, I, if I'm in the middle of something, I'm on my phone, I'm on my computer, and, and one of my kids walks up or someone else comes in the room, and it's like, Put it down, fully engage, right? And then trying to, you know, you young theologians here, trying to teach you guys this, because, you know, we, we old folks didn't grow up with that. We didn't have one of these growing up. You know, our, our, our thing was stuck to a wall, had a cord on it. You know, we had six feet and you couldn't go any farther. Um, you guys have grown up with this, where it's just, it's there. And one of the things you guys have to learn is the self-control to put this down when you need to put it down and engage in a live, like real person conversation. And, and I know that's hard. We, we feel that, that pressure with you. But that's why, you know, when your folks say, hey, put down your device, I need your full attention. It's not because we, you know, we're trying to make your life miserable. It's because we're trying to train you to have the sort of self-control that, that James is envisioning here so that we're fully engaging and fully listening. OK, so that, that's the listening part of this. And, and I think we can all grow uh, in our skills there. Uh, I, I, repeating back in your own words is good. Uh, trying to put yourself in the place of the other person is good. And um, I, I've learned a, a thing over the years, too, just in doing lots of counseling. Clarify before you confront. Clarify before you confront. So before you go in and say, you sinner, you need to repent because I think you're right. Clarify. I heard you say this. I, I observed you do this and, and clarify to that conclusion before you launch into the it, they may need to be rebuked. They may need to be corrected, but but clarify first. And uh, that goes a long way there. OK, so quick to listen. What's the next part of this? Slow to speak. And that goes with what Grant was saying. Right. If we're, we have to stop talking um, to listen first. So help me with slow to speak. What is what does that need to look like? Yes, Jude. Yes, think before you speak. Um, yeah, we just all we're all convicted by that, aren't we? Uh, what else in slow to speak? There's a let's think before we do that. Uh, what are the, what are some of the things that we might want to think about before we speak? Russie? Can you filter that through the words? Uh, yeah. That would be good. You do that all the time. Anyway. Yeah. It should be a practice for us to filter. Yeah. The truth. The yeah. Truth is what we're receiving or may or receive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just, just analyzing it from a biblical standpoint. Uh, what, how should I think about what I'm hearing? And there's that there's that analytical. Let's put it in a biblical grid and figure out what I need to do. Uh, think of a passage like Ephesians 4:29 that gives you three easy takeaways. Right? I'm going to speak to build up, not tear down the person. I'm going to speak according to the need of the moment, which means I'm going to think about what's the need. Right? Is now the right time? Uh, is is this the way to best serve the person? Would there be a, a better need? Um, you know. 
have you noticed this, that, that sometimes God's agenda in engaging somebody else is not my agenda? My agenda is to get my point across. God's agenda is often to be an empathetic listener, right? To, to, to encourage, to put myself in their situation, to consider the possibility that I'm wrong and they have something to contribute to how I'm thinking about it. Um, so, so speak to build up, not tear down. Speak to, according to the need of the moment, right? Well, what's the need? And then, and then the last part of Ephesians 4.29 is so that it'll give grace to those who hear. Here, here's the shocker, okay? God's will in every communication encounter that you and I have is not to get our point across, but to give grace to the other person. What would our marriages be like? What would our families be like? What would our church culture be like if we ignored everything else in the Bible, but we just tried to give grace to those who heard? Right. Not that we shouldn't ignore everything else, but I think that one thing would, would revolutionize it, wouldn't it? And then look at this last part, slow to anger. That's an old biblical way of saying be patient. Do we have a chat? Okay. Sorry, I have the chat window closed here. Did you see who it was? Uh, where are we? There we go. Yes, uh, Lisa Alcorn saying, consider your own motives and what you say. Hey, that's really good. Why do I want to say this? All right, am I trying to listen? Am I trying to give grace? Am I trying to build up the other person? Or do I have a less than godly agenda? That's really good. Thank you, Lisa, for sharing that. Uh, slow to anger, patience. Um, why? <laughs> we all know what anger does to a conversation, don't we? It, it uh, it's like dropping a dye of a drop of food coloring into a bowl of water, and it just colors the whole thing, doesn't it? That's what anger does. When we start getting angry in a conversation, it just completely alters the whole thing. And, and here's what well, we'll talk more about anger when we get to chapter four. But but here, here's here's James just dipping his toe in the water of, of anger here. OK, he says, why should we be slow to anger? Verse 20, the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Wow. So as much as it feels right in the moment, as much as I feel entitled to possess it, as effective as anger can be in manipulating to get what I want, it never achieves God's righteous purposes. Not, not this kind of anger. We'll talk about righteous anger in a few weeks. But, but we're talking about the anger that you and I struggle with and, and, 99.9% of the time, what we're dealing with is not righteous anger. It's good old fallen, sinful anger, selfish anger. So, But that's important. I think that that's a good takeaway right now that um, whether, it's, whether it's political frustration, economic frustration, cultural frustration, relational frustration, uh, we need to resolve this, that if we're in a place of being sinfully angry, we have stepped out of the bounds of God's will and God's intent 
for that situation. And if we want to be a part of the work God is doing in whatever situation we're in, we've got to turn away from sinful anger and uh, to learn to be to be patient. Like Paul told Timothy, um, the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, right? Kind all, able to teach, patient when wronged. Um, that's, a, that's a good takeaway. So, Okay, um, did you read James this week? How many read James at least one time all the way through this week? Good job. How many read more than one time this week? Okay, we'll, we'll stay at it because that's how we're going to master this book. We're just going to keep reading and reading and reading. That's the first major section break in the book of James, so we'll come back. In verse 21, you'll notice the therefore, that starts the second major section, and uh, we'll get to that next week, okay? But a lot to think about in terms of uh, your mission, should you choose to accept it on the way home uh, from worship service today, is to ask your spouse or ask your kid or ask a good friend, how are you doing at being quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger? And um, we pray that God would help us all to, to grow in those things. So, uh, Father, thank you for time and your word. And so applicable, so, so applicable what we're reading. Uh, give us grace to live out our faith in the ways that we've talked about today and in wisdom and temptation when we're humbled, when we're interacting with people. And, uh, and cause us, Lord, to, to act in a way that's pleasing to you for your glory. In Christ's name, amen.